Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm founder of the Your People Marketing and PR Agency, and I lead the Make Meaning Movement, a platform that helps purpose-driven visionaries and leaders do business with meaning. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of how people dare to take chances to live the life they want with meaningful work and purposeful days. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Today on the Make Meaning Podcast, I'm welcoming Andrew Flagel, President and CEO of the Consortium of Universities of the Washington Metropolitan Area. The consortium represents and fosters collaboration among 17 colleges and universities that collectively enroll nearly 300,000 students each year. The consortium institutions constitute the largest non-government employer in the region. With course sharing agreements in place for more than 90 years, the consortium is one of the world's foremost educational collaboratives. Flagel received undergraduate and master's degrees from George Washington University, where he was regional director of admissions before being appointed director of admissions for the Congressional Youth Leadership Council. He received his PhD from Michigan State University's prestigious program in higher adult and lifelong education while serving as a director in Flint for the University of Michigan. There he focused his research on access and inclusion. Dean Flagel has worked at a variety of universities, bringing deep perspective on the role of higher education and its impact on communities and individuals. Andrew Flagel, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start with the idea of the consortium. It's an impressive concept, and I want to unpack this idea a little. Could you tell me a little bit about how it came to be and what the benefit is to both the involved institutions and the people who both work and attend them? Sure. You know, in its initial conception, it was a, a pretty simple idea that the D.C.-based institutions uh, back in the 1930s would collaborate on courses, that mm-hmm. students would be able to take courses from one another. And this makes perfect sense, although uh, we've increasingly uh, built walls around our institutions in many cases. At the time, it was just a logical way of sharing resources. Of uh, If one institution was deeper in a particular language or in a particular uh, technology, then the other institutions could benefit from that. So there's been this long tale of collaboration uh, among the DC institutions uh, going back 90 years. Uh, today, Uh, This model of building consortia has taken a lot of different forms across the country. Many of them are hubs of innovation and transformation in higher education. And the consortia has evolved right along with that. So while we continue to be one of the largest uh, course sharing enterprises, we have a whole variety of programs across our institutions and, in fact, have expanded to include the suburban institutions uh, from Maryland's flagship, the University of Maryland, George Mason University, the largest institution in Virginia, our tremendous community colleges, Prince George's, Montgomery College, Northern Virginia Community College, Marymount College all of which contribute to an incredibly diverse group of institutions that is also the only consortium, I believe, that includes uh, three federal institutions, the National Defense and National Intelligence Universities, for instance. So that that combination really makes it uh, distinct, if not unique, 
among institutions, uh, or among uh, collaborations around the country. So that uh, gives us the freedom to work with public-private partnerships, to uh, work with the uh, various jurisdictions throughout the region, to think boldly about how we can support students, how we can better do economic development in the region, how we can empower social mobility and equity and access. Uh, and that's really what drew me to the consortium is the exceptional opportunity to contribute to the region and to our students uh, in a way that that might not be possible from any single institution. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, you know, I lived in the Washington DC area for several years in the 90s. I lived in Bethesda, worked in DC, and um, I was a journalist then. But I know the whole Delmarva region is so integrated. I mean, because it's all drivable, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a hub. And so, um, and I have family there. So we're, you know, we, we visit a lot and, you know, I'm in the Midwest where it's a little more spread out, but still, you know, every state has so many universities and colleges and institutions of higher learning. And it's, it's interesting what you said that um, we've built some walls around us in recent years, but this idea of collaborating and reducing those barriers is so powerful because you know, in higher ed has become so competitive. And I wonder if having a consortium where everybody's contributing their best to the greater good is a better way to go if, if that would impact this competitive nature that we have in higher ed now. What do you think about that? Well, I think those opportunities are there. I mean, there's no doubt that, that we at times underplay how much we are competing with one another, whether it's small private institutions or state institutions, uh, there's uh, in, uh, a lot of uh, cost in the system in this hyper-competitive environment. And unlike other industries where there's been a, a large series of mergers and acquisitions, the very distinctive nature or the belief in the distinctive nature of all of our institutions has led to uh, the not only the sustenance of this vast array of institutions across the country, but the proliferation of those institutions. Mm-hmm. So several, uh, if you go to Clayton Christensen or, or Michael Horn, the, the, many of my, my colleagues who I've known for many years who are pundits in the higher education industry posit that that's just unsustainable, that the, the collapse is near and institutions are going to start to close in waves of course, we heard this in the 70s and again in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, I believe that many of them believe if they just keep shooting at the same target, eventually they're bound to be right. <laughs> but I think the the reality actually is more nuanced. And uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head. The, the potential of collaboration among institutions, I think, is much more likely and much more impactful than the idea of institutions uh, just shuddering. So you'll surely have states that are going to look across uh, their organizational structures and think about whether all of the sites that they currently maintain make a lot of sense. But I would encourage the higher education leadership in those states, our institutions all over the country, to think boldly about how we can best collaborate across our institutions. Where are the opportunities to have tremendous savings by working together. And I think as we continue to build those pieces out, we're gonna see institutions find uh, new financial efficiencies uh, to be able to expand our core services, which is uh, the tremendous level of education that we're able to provide to students that has been for so many years, the envy of the rest of the world. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's really the difference between an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality. And so if we're all competing for the same resources, then, you know, we're sort of competing ourselves out of a job. And if we say, look, we can do this really well, and you can do that really well, let's partner so that the students benefit, the community benefits, and overall higher ed benefits, I think that's wise. You know, we're in this pandemic right now where I think higher ed and education in general in our country has been laid bare. And we're seeing, um, you know, what is of value and what isn't. And in so many cases in higher ed, what's becoming apparent is that, you know, people were opting in for the bells and whistles and not necessarily for the academics, even though in theory they, they were, but the delivery of academics, you know, shouldn't, it, it doesn't really change necessarily based on whether you're in person or you're remote, but the experience does. And all of a sudden the value of one university over another is being debated. I mean, I think this pandemic is really showing us some important questions, don't you think? Well, so Lynn, I want to push back on almost everything you just said. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I, I actually don't think this has highlighted uh, things in quite the way you describe. I, I agree that it's certainly laid bare, uh, to use the, the phrase that you used, a, a lot of the challenges in higher education. But mm -hmm. I think it highlighted the value of academics. So, I mean, what you're okay. hearing from students uh, almost universally is their desire to get back in the classroom with their faculty. So it, sure. I, I really disagree that it's the, the, the one, I, I also have a disagreement with the idea that higher education, uh, that the other things that happen aren't academic or are bells and whistles. And uh, I know that most folks in, are obsessed and I just can't stand every time one of my colleagues writes an article about finances and higher education, they're obsessed with climbing walls. I don't know why everybody hates climbing walls so much. I will say, having managed university, climbing walls are inexpensive. Of all the things you can spend money on, they're inexpensive ways to offer an athletic <laughs> opportunity to a vast array of students. I don't know why people are so opposed to climbing walls. But the idea that we are educating the whole student, that there needs to be opportunities for the social and emotional health of our students, that we're preparing students to be contributors to society and preparing them academically for the workforce of the future, which means they need to be adaptable. They need to be critical thinkers. They need to be learners. That happens both in and outside the classroom. And the best institutions, which I think are most of our higher education institutions, have tied those pieces together and are thinking boldly about their academic and their extracurricular. And they, instead, they use the term co-curricular experience. So I think that is happening. And, and I think what you see is, is institutions in the pandemic have had to think really boldly about how do you continue to deliver that connection and that holistic approach in an online environment. And, and that's what students have, have found somewhat wanting. But I think they're getting better and better at that. I, that said, I think students, there was a great article by one of my presidents, uh, Irma Becerra at uh, Marymount, who just wrote a blog today about how much her students want the in-person experience. And so I, I think that has become more highly valued. I think as we've unraveled this pandemic, what we're all realizing is how much we miss one another and being with one another. And there's few places as phenomenal for providing that experience as a college campus. I, one of the great privileges of my life has been the opportunity to spend my career surrounded by people so much smarter than I am every day and be challenged by their energy and their enthusiasm and their thoughts about what we could do to make the world a better place. 
And I, I, the idea that we're just going to move entirely online uh, seems uh, a mythology to me. I think the idea that we're ever going to, again, be entirely in place is also incorrect. I think we will increasingly be all of those things. So where I think the, the strength of collaboration, and I'll push back on something you said also, I don't think it's necessarily that one school will teach this piece and another school will only teach that piece. There's areas of collaboration in our institutional cybersecurity and technology infrastructures, in our support for student emotional and physical health that can be collaborative across institutions in really interesting ways. At the consortium, for instance, we run the police academy for all of the uh, DC-based uh, campus, uh, campus police forces. Hmm. And one of the things we're looking at right now is providing a new leading edge model at community policing for campuses. And if we're successful in that, could we roll out that instruction to far more institutions all over the country, uh, meeting this incredible moment uh, as we all are in thinking about what policing should mean in our society? So I don't think it's limited uh, to, uh, you'll just have expertise in that, we'll have expertise in this, but much more the idea that we can share resources and focus then on the things that that are both cost intensive and personalized. And to echo what President Becerra said, it is that personalized education that, that individuals are craving. You know, the last time everybody predicted that, that higher education would close was with the MOOCs. Remember the, the mm -hmm. MOOCs were coming, the mm -hmm. massive courses, they were going to be free, and that was <laughs> higher education. Sure. And in particular, they posited that it would be the end of community colleges because they were going to be free, massive courses. And I have to tell you, my community college, go to Northern Virginia Community College, Montgomery College, Prince George's University of the District of Columbia. These are incredible institutions serving the most diverse students in our society and providing incredible opportunity for social mobility. So uh, I, quite the opposite has happened. Those institutions have grown and flourished. And I think it's very much because students want that connection. They want to be part of a larger structure and, and organization and community. And I think that's what we do really well in higher education, particularly in the United States, distinctly, I think, from many other parts of the world. And so leveraging what we do really well is important and thinking about the pieces that we can do collaboratively without diminishing that. So I think valuing our faculty, valuing our service staff, uh, we can elevate what we do collaboratively. Uh, but I wouldn't frame it as, uh, you know, I think what every time we talk about collaboration, there is this expectation that what it means is we'll stop doing a whole bunch of academic programs. Uh, and I don't think that's the, uh, the intent. I, I do think there are some models as you, as you talk to different institutions of doing academic programs more creatively, mm -hmm. um, of, of thinking less about traditional majors, uh, less about traditional programs and silos, and more about interdisciplinary opportunities uh, for faculty. And I, I think that's faculty-led appropriately and very exciting. So I think that higher education is quite rightly going to evolve dramatically. But I think what may come from this incredible moment of so many crises at us at the same time is higher education, rather than uh, retracting, 
uh, could flourish and, and in many ways, I think will be more resilient uh, and a better service model than it's ever been. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I stand corrected, although I will say I have no problem with climbing walls, but I do have a little bit as a parent of four teenagers of a problem with the very fancy um, cafeteria options. Like I went to University of Michigan from 89 to 93 and we had a salad bar and then we had our entrees and we were fine. And I'm sure it cost a little less, although the whatever, the value of the dollar was different. So you you raise a really important piece about the one of the cost factors that has been passed along to, and it doesn't actually impact tuition. It, it, it becomes a cost passed along to the student directly in dining and, and in housing costs is the escalation of quality of housing and dining. Sure. So I, I want to think about it on two fronts. One is uh, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, I was at Brandeis University where Maslow actually taught and purportedly mm-hmm. was involved in the founding of the Counseling Center. That's anecdotal, probably not too true. But uh, Maslow, you know, posited that we, we, we thrive best, right? We, we are best able to self-actualize when our core needs are met. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do we mean by core needs? So in today's society, what are the expectations that student have, students and families have walking in the door? I have to tell you that absolutely students and families expect, regardless of background, that we're going to be able to attend to their dining needs regardless of their medical conditions, mm-hmm. allergens, mm-hmm. all of the other uh, specializations, vegan, gluten, uh, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly complex. Sure. And while you may look at all the array of, of bright, shiny uh, contractors that work on our campuses to provide that dining experience, behind the scenes, what, what, what is happening is an incredibly complex service model in order to meet that need and try to be sustainable. Sure. So uh, what I see, and, and by the way, I, I started my career in dining services. I actually worked <laughs> Uh, for Sodexo as a, as a student manager. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that the food service is less wasteful, most more cost efficient. Uh, and, and we're able to offer this vast array of services in a way that allows students to pick and choose. I think what we fail to do is educate students in many cases very well on what the financial implications are of their choices. They can at almost every campus pick a far more cost effective option. Sure. But often are are not because of the way they can access aid in some cases, they will find that it's easy to to fund themselves and, and to do more. At the same time, incredibly important to recognize how many students we have that are um, food insecure. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know we're, we're confronting this this disparity in our society in higher education every day where we have campuses with this incredible largesse of, of dining options and students who uh, at breaks or at campuses where they can't access those options are, are wondering where their next meal is coming from. And uh, I think that's going to be one of our, our, our largest, I don't think, it is one of our largest challenges that we have to meet is making sure that no student has to wonder where their next meal is coming from or where the roof over their head is going to be. It is a moment that we ought to be able to meet. Uh, And I believe the resources are there, but we have to think again creatively about how to collaborate to meet that challenge. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you've dedicated your life to higher ed. Um, you've had held quite a, a lot of roles that are really impressive. <laughs> and so I know that you've done a sounds lot. Like I couldn't, sounds like I couldn't hold a job, but yes, uh, <laughs> I've done a lot of positions. That's right. Well, you've done a lot to create programs for members of the military and veterans and international and transfer students. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of that work and why it matters to you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't get into higher education directly, as, as I suspect many folks uh, find themselves. I, I grew up in a household where my, my mother was really my uh, touchstone and my, my idol. Uh, she was a community activist. She had been a school teacher and became the, the first woman on the city council in our town and uh, got involved in economic development and founded this massive nonprofit to really transform access for the most uh, vulnerable members of our community in Dayton, Ohio. And it inspired me. I, I thought I would come to college in Washington, D.C., and I would go into politics and I would follow her as a community activist. And on my way there, I, uh, because we fell into some financial challenges while I was in school and I was working three jobs, I, I believe by the time I graduated, I had worked in almost every office on campus. And I developed uh, in that period, I, I'm so fortunate to have had these absolutely wonderful friends and mentors from the president of the university to the vice president for student affairs. Uh, they remain uh, close colleagues and friends who have guided my career. And uh, it developed uh, two passions in me. One was this idea that working in higher education is a profound way to have a positive influence on our world. And the other was that there was such a tremendous uh, a disassociation between what was going on in higher education and the needs of our society for greater equity and access. Uh, so uh, I, uh, much to my parents' dismay, turned down law school uh, and started a master's degree in education and began work uh, at that time in the admissions office at my alma mater at GW and uh, had the opportunity to start my research focused on that idea of, of how could we change our institutions to be more equitable, to have greater access. Uh, and uh, that's been uh, really the thread throughout my career as I've moved from institution to institution, uh, that opportunity to think transformationally. And so whether it was working with uh, community colleges, which became uh, the focus of my doctoral research and, and work in Michigan, uh, the work with, with veterans, uh, work with students with learning differences, uh, opportunities to think boldly about uh, leveraging the arts in education, thinking about how we might uh, uh, better change our entire admission structure with things like test optional and test, uh, test flexible admissions. In each case, that's uh, been the cornerstone, has been thinking about our, our efforts at uh, access and inclusion and, and equity throughout higher education. Um, and then also had opportunities to, to get involved in other areas of, of social justice and activism through my institutions, which has, uh, you know, one of the great joys of working in higher education is you're surrounded with these passionate, dynamic young people who never believe, no matter what you think of yourself as, a, as, a, as an activist, they're 10 steps past you the minute they walk in the door. Yeah. And push you to, to question whether you've been doing the right thing, whether you couldn't do better. And uh, I think one of our challenges is seeing ourselves through their eyes and trying to make ourselves the kinds of people they'd like us to be. 
You know, um, it's really powerful and it's so true. I, I'm, as I said, I'm the mom of four teens, one of whom just started college. And I've taught um, writing at universities for 20 years. I teach at University of Detroit Mercy right now. Um, and it's interesting because I think, you know, your vision for access and inclusion um, was so important. And I, I love that you're doing this work. I know you've also done some work on, um, you know, access, creating pathways to higher ed, you know, through community colleges or public schools. You know, I wonder if you could speak about that a little and the long-term impact that such, whether it's early college programs or, you know, dual enrollment programs can have for students and how that can answer the access and inclusion question too. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, and I'll say, I, I just dropped off my son at college last week. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm with you. He's in his first year in the middle of a pandemic. So yep. uh, I can definitely commiserate about the anxiety of, uh, and I know way too much, right? I'm not only worried about the pandemic, I'm worried about every other thing that's ever gone wrong. <laughs> because I know them all so intimately. Yes. yes. But let's talk about more optimistic things, which is, so yes, I, I think there's uh, so when we talk about pathways, there's a lot of different components. That, that term is very charged. Uh, there's uh, brilliant researchers at my former association, uh, uh, Tia McNair in particular at the Association of American Colleges and Universities, has a phenomenal pathways program that's really designed around guided pathways, the idea that you can clearly lay out pathways for students to success in a community college setting and really increase the levels of success for those students. Uh, the pathways that I worked with both in, in uh, Flint, Michigan, and then in uh, Northern Virginia and DC uh, was the, the kind of piece that you're talking about reaching down into the secondary schools all the way through a bachelor's degree programs. Uh, so there's no doubt that there's a whole host of preparation and I'm, I don't have the expertise on the secondary sky, side to speak to it as boldly as some of my colleagues, but everything all the way down to pre-K sets the stage for students. But one of the things that I've emphasized throughout my career is that it is never too late to transform people's lives with education. Whether it's eighth grade, whether it's senior year of high school, whether it's a 35-year-old or a 75-year-old, mm -hmm. we have the ability to create access points. And uh, one of the challenges, I think, is we have so many fail points in our system, so many points where it seems like, well, now I did this and I'm, I didn't do well on this standardized test, or I didn't do well in this course, so I can't get to that one, or... And then when I look forward from that stopping point, that wall that I've hit, to get to the end point, to get to the accomplishment looks like climbing a mountain. And so the piece that I've built with many of my colleagues over the years has been the idea that you can demonstrate to a student that it's possible to get to the end goal, but also set up small manageable pieces along the way. And since I picked on Michael Horn a few, uh, just a little while ago, I'll say he has an outstanding book about uh, thinking about college in really creative ways and says maybe not everybody should be starting college right away and they should be thinking about some of these micro-credentials and starting points on their way towards the educational process. And I think that's quite right. And in fact, I would go further and say you can do that at almost every stage of education, whether it's retraining as an employee, whether it's coming through community college. So the Pathways program, for instance, that we did with George Mason University, Northern, community, Northern Virginia Community College, 
and the Fairfax County Public Schools and eventually uh, DC uh, Public Schools was the idea that you could reach out to students who were not expected to succeed. They, they, they would be lucky to, to, at that point to be graduating high school and say to them, we want you at George Mason University. And we want you so badly at George Mason University. We'd like to, con- we believe you have potential based on what teachers have told us. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not worried about anything that's happened up till now. We see the potential in you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to admit you into this Pathways program towards George Mason University. And we're going to help prepare you to go into the community college. And then at the community college, you're going to have the advising and guidance. And you're going to come to some of our basketball games. Some of our lecturers are going to go to see you. We want to let you know at every stage, you're part of our community. You're part of our family. And when you graduate from the community college, one of my favorite events, I would go speak at the Pathways graduation and the emotion and the exhaustion and the excitement all combined in this incredible event where these students who weren't sure they would graduate high school were now headed towards a bachelor's degree. But if you said to them the day that everything was crashing down in high school, uh, now get going towards your bachelor's degree. It, it, it just felt like such a huge hill to climb. So, so we, we did both, right? We, it was the and, not the or. It was showing them that there was this destination, but also giving them manageable pieces on the way. And I think that we can't overstate this, making sure they felt at every stage like they were part of our community. And, and I think that that sense of being connected, of being part of something, uh, is often underestimated. You know, my one of my favorite colleagues uh, that founded the, uh, the the Posse Foundation, Deb Beal, uh, has, has wonderful research about the strength of community, about how different it is for a student when they feel like they have their friends around them, when they have those connections, that they have mentors. Uh, and so that that became a, a strength on which she's built this phenomenal program of student access and success. Uh, and I believe that's possible for students at, at all ages and at all levels. I've been working uh, recently with uh, the Gerontological Society of America and AARP mm-hmm. around the concept of more age-inclusive universities. When you look at the demographics and where we're going in our society, uh, we have a demographic cliff of students of traditional college-going age, but we have a uh, explosion of the individuals uh, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, people are living longer than other, they're uh, longer than ever, they are active longer than ever. And our universities have underserved uh, that population. Uh, and uh, when you think about preparing students for the workforce, there's an aspect of diversity there that we need to attend to as well. So all of those are pieces that, that lend themselves to this idea of, uh, you know, another term we use is stackable credentials towards uh, larger degrees. And I, I think those pieces are, are part of that potential of collaborations like the consortium as well. I think you raise a lot of great points. And, and I think there's something really brilliant in looking at your educational journey in manageable chunks. I think that you know, it would benefit all students because it can feel overwhelming you know, to have this long journey ahead of you. You identify a goal and you say, wow, I have all of these steps to get there. But if you take it one step at a time and you really immerse in the moment, you know, this is where I am right now. I'm going to get everything I can out of it. And then I'll greet the next phase when I get there. I, I feel like that relieves a little bit of the pressure 
and it can allow students to really be where they are. And I love that concept of, you know, the importance of learning in community and feeling like you really are seen and heard and, and that you're part of things. I, I'm sure I don't have the research to, to say this definitively now, but I'm sure there is research that shows that students do better when they feel like they're a part of the community. I'm sure. Yeah, there, there's actually tremendous uh, retention research. Tinto and others who have have done detailed research on when students say that they felt more connected. And and to go back to a point we we touched on earlier, when particularly when they feel more connected to faculty. So mm-hmm. that that faculty connection is incredibly important, and I and I think is often uh, minimized when we when we talk about how our, when students thrive in higher education. And, and so, the, you know, to talk about that piece, I, again, I think it's both setting big audacious goals for students and then having these, these uh, components, whether they're micro-credentials or certificates, badges, pieces along the way that recognize the work that's been accomplished and also let a student see how they fit together towards their bigger goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do want to go back for one minute to this um, notion where both, uh, you know, parents of college students, first year college students um, at a really interesting time. Um, But I wanted to ask you because, you know, you've been, uh, you know, a professional in higher ed for so many years. And then as a parent, you became a consumer of higher ed. And so I wonder if that duality in any way opened your eyes to new ideas or ways of facilitating higher education, just coming from that consumer side and seeing things that maybe you didn't see as a leader in higher ed. You know, it, it was so interesting. My son is so different than I am. He's he's a, a quiet, introverted thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is the opposite of an impulse buyer. Uh, and uh, he had such a thoughtful process going through this. Uh, and yet, at the same time, I really got a glimpse uh, for many institutions that he ruled out and, and many decisions that he made of just how capricious uh, the 17-year-old mind really is when we're <laughs> trying to uh, market something of substance. I'm really, really proud that, so he chose Denison University in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they have uh, one of the most, uh, outside of my consortium, one of the most dynamic presidents in, in higher education. Uh-huh. I think the work that they're doing is really incredible. Uh, but I know in the end uh, that he made really thoughtful decisions about the right academic atmosphere for him and wanted to make sure that he could have his car on campus. And mm-hmm. those were not on, on, you know, those were both very important <laughs> factors for him. Uh, and uh, at one point I said, really, is it all about the car? I mean, seriously, dude, and he <laughs> looked at me and he said, you were the one who has said for all these years that there's no bad decisions about picking a college. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. Don't quote me back to myself. So uh, I think he he's made a, a great decision. I certainly hope so. And uh, he's very vested in it. And I think they're doing everything they can to manage uh, this moment quite well. But I, again, it, it, if anything, what it reinforced for me was the overwhelming amount of privilege uh, that, that I have mm-hmm. uh, and that my son has in the system. I mean, yeah. we we knew people on almost every campus we visited. Uh, we have a level of access and support. I know college counselors and uh, from all over the world, uh, and many of them know my son and we're in touch with him separately and talking to him about his choices. He uh, went to a, a, a really innovative independent school that that allowed him to explore his interests and, and very different way of learning. I, I want to see that kind of access and opportunity for all students. 
Yeah. And I, but I recognized that at every stage in the process that we were enjoying a, a level of access that is not yet typical, even though it should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll just say quickly, my son is at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. And um, yeah, he, but he also had a very thoughtful process. You know, when I was looking at schools in the 80s, I wanted a place that was uh, big enough where I could meet somebody new every day and still not know everyone. That was my criteria as a teenager. And he wanted small, he wanted to be known and to, to have a community. Um, and, and it was very interesting to be the parent watching the process and seeing him choose um, options that were good for him. And, you know, he sat in on classes and he wanted to stay in a dorm overnight on some of the campuses with a student to experience it. I never did any of that. I don't even, I didn't even visit campuses back then. I just got the acceptance and said, okay. And um, it was interesting because as a marketer, I was watching all of the different efforts, you know, the emails coming in and things coming in the mail every day for several years. And um, then watching what he responded to, um, because, you know, I was looking at universities in a different way than he was. And I know that there were a couple of schools that sent handwritten notes after we visited from students. And St. Olaf was one of them. And that really spoke to him about, you know, having students working in the admissions office and then acknowledging that he had been there with a handwritten note in the mail, um, which I didn't know if teenagers today would care for. And he, it really spoke to him and grabbed his attention. And so that was eye-opening for me as a marketer. It was interesting to watch and to see the different things that schools are doing and, and how it resonates with parents versus students as well. So that was kind of cool. So I'll say, you know, my, my son in in the entire, well, one, I'm curious if your son actually looked at any emails because my son, I had to force (laughs) even open his email at any stage in the process, which was also interesting. But, (laughs) Uh, concerning the volume of emails we've all gone to. Yeah. Um, uh, my son was, has spent far too long with parents who are deeply immersed in marketing higher education. <laughs> so he was so skeptical of every message he got. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't want to pick on anything. Well, there, there was one message that he got, I will say, from McAllister College uh-huh. that he thought was so funny tongue-in-cheek that he almost he had no interest in that in going to that particular area mm-hmm. but he thought it was so well written he brought it to me and said i just feel like i should maybe talk to him because it, and it mm-hmm. it said blah literally it, the text was blah 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 McAllister, blah 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 that's what you <laughs> get it from everybody we figured we just cut out the middle man i mean it was it was wonderfully tongue in cheek. And then it said something about, you know, we are ideally positioned right in the middle of the country. And I, I just, every line was just very pithy and That's um, so cool. conveniently yeah. located between both coasts. Uh, <laughs> I so, love it. Uh, yeah. He just thought that was, that was lighthearted and, and nice and really uh, uh, got him. But I'll say that uh, there were notes, um, you know, there was one point where uh, he got a, a note of admission and they, they sent back to him and said, we're dancing in the hallway over your admission. And he's like, come on. <laughs> he was just like, no, you're not. That's uh, awesome. I love yeah, that. Some of the personal notes, he's like, oh, this was Masbury. They, they did these in mass, I can see, you know. So uh, he was uh, pretty skeptical, uh, I would say, of, of all of the marketing at, at every stage of the process. But he was, uh, it was great to watch the importance of the college tour play out, which again is a, is a position of privilege, right? Because oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it really emphasizes uh, the, the huge di- dis- uh, difference in access in our program. But for my son, uh, his decision was, I think, 
wildly influenced by these tours. Mm-hmm. And no matter how dynamic the tour guide, when it was a mass of people, he was turned off by the tour itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the institutions that had very small tours uh, with personalized tour guides made a made a big impact on him. Mm-hmm. That's a small investment. When you think about what universities invest money in, spending money on your own students to spend more time during tours is a really smart bet. Oh, but yeah. having been in that position, hard money to get. Yeah. Which yeah. is strange, right? I can get, it's faster for me to get more money for a Facebook campaign <laughs> is for me to get more money to pay more of my students to do more tours. Which is incredible because that face-to-face contact is so important and just getting to know the students and how they feel. And you know, even if they're representing the university, they're going to be on, on script. But I think there is a relating student to student that is, is very powerful. You know, I'll tell you um, really quickly that my son stayed in dorms at a couple of different universities. And in one, he really met a lot of the students and he got to experience different parts of being there and campus and, and activities that they normally do in the course of being there. And at one of the universities, the student who hosted him, who was, you know, obviously working with the admissions office, he he said, I have to study. And he left my son in his dorm room, which was a single for like the whole night. I mean, he didn't come back until after midnight. And my son was like, oh, and he would have gone to the library and done his high school school work or he would have, you know, but he just, it left a bad taste in his mouth. And so of all the great things on that campus, that was the most impactful to him. It was like, well, this tells me something about students. So yeah. Yeah, This comes back to the quixotic nature of 17 year olds, right? So Mm -hmm. in the end, yes, I can spend more money and get more tour guides, but they're only as good as the volunteers and the the students that I pay and the things. And they have lives and they have other things going on. So you're at the mercy of how these students interact. I will say we had a, a, a charming tour guide at Denison. And uh, as the young lady was touring us around, my son had noticed that Steve Carell from The Office uh-huh. was a graduate. Oh, and, wow. Um, a huge, we, we all watched The Office together. Uh, and interestingly, Jennifer Garner is also a graduate and just posted all these COVID, you know, pandemic videos of she and her kids watching The Office together and uh, crying at the very end of the show, which was me, not my son. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, he said, oh, I was really excited to see Steve Carell go, went here. Does he ever come back? And she was so charming. She says, oh, he comes back all the time. He's on the radio. <laughs> and, like, and, and she goes, he's so funny. But And she looked at my son. She goes, he gives a lot of bad advice. Don't take his dating advice. You, you should listen to him because he's funny and be entertained. But don't take his dating advice. And my son <laughs> just thought that was the sweetest. It was just such this very, you know, you couldn't script that, right? Just right. a very personal moment. That's but I also say, you know, staff reached out directly. Uh, he had contacts from from the academic. Uh, I, I will say, I think for, for, for my son, this comes back to my belief again in faculty. It was the contact with uh, people in the academic departments that that probably made his final decision. Uh, so I, I don't think we can minimize, and, and you really have to think about how you spend your faculty time, yeah. but the value of having your faculty connect with students at the right moment uh, can, really can't be overstated. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that it's people, it's the students that are, that are doing the on the ground interaction and the faculty op- opportunity to interact. That's what I think makes more of a difference than, than any view book or website. 
Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Andrew Flagel, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the Make Meaning podcast. And I usually like to finish by asking my guests to offer a permission slip to our listeners. So we focus on how we find meaning and work from a sense of purpose and live with purpose. And so I wonder, um, you know, what, you know, permission should we give ourselves to go in search of this meaning and purpose, um, whether it's in our education or in our lives or in our work? Uh, my son gave a speech at his, one of the, was one of the speakers at his high school graduation. And he talked about how hard this moment is. And, and he said, but, you know, we have so much. And so there's times when we feel like it, it, this isn't as hard as it was in the last pandemic, or this isn't as hard as people had it at other times in wars. And, and he said, but we should, it's okay to feel bad. Mm-hmm. It's okay in this moment to let yourself feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, but he said, then, then you still have to take that energy and know that you still have to make a difference and you still have to try to make it better for other people. Mm-hmm. And it, it just knocked me out. And it, it speaks to, for me, this piece in, in terms of my career, where I've been on so many panels with folks in higher education who have talked about how hard their jobs are. And, and it's true. I, I don't minimize that. I've had some, some truly awful, painful moments with families and students at the, at the worst moments in their lives. Uh, and, and those moments took everything out of me. But at the same time, we have to realize what an incredible privilege, what a gift we have to have these jobs, to get to spend our lives being involved with these young people, with these incredible scholars. These are the best jobs you can have in the world. And I think we can hold both those things in our head at the same time. So so the thing that I would give permission to do is to know that it's okay to hurt and that it's okay to feel bad, uh, that it's okay to... uh, recognize this incredible moment we're in and feel lost and alone. And at the same time, hold in our heads that we're not alone and that we have this incredible opportunity with these institutions to make meaning out of the challenges that we face in our world. And that these young people, not just, I shouldn't even say it that way because it's not just these young people. It it is all of our students at all ages uh, and in all backgrounds mm-hmm. that come to us with this belief in bettering themselves and through bettering themselves, bettering the world. And, and they're going to do it. We're going to make things better. Absolutely. So that, that would be the piece that I would give folks permission to do, to believe in the value every day of what we're doing and that it's okay to feel bad and still feel really incredibly blessed to have these opportunities. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew Flagel. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today on the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to do it. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. Thank you.